Hello, everyone. My name is Nick Langan. Uh, very excited today to be hosting an episode of WXVU's ProfCast podcast series. This is the 15th episode of ProfCast. Uh, we've recorded them all this spring 2023 academic semester here at Villanova, speaking with various members of our wonderful faculty here at, at the university, uh, talking about their research areas, what led them to Villanova. Um, and I'm very excited today to have with me in the uh, WXVU studio, Dr. Steven Strader. Uh, he is an associate professor and the geography program director in the geography and the environment department here at Villanova. He has a bachelor's degree in geography from Indiana University, a master's in geography from Northern Illinois University, and he earned his doctorate in geography from Northern Illinois in 2016. Dr. Strader is a hazards geographer, an atmospheric scientist, and geographic information systems analyst, and he has affiliations with the American Meteorological Society and the Association of American Geographers, and he's appeared on various uh, very high-profile platforms talking about his research, including the Weather Channel of late. Uh, so I'm so excited to, uh, to have Dr. Strader with us. Dr. Strader, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an ap absolute pleasure. Um, just uh, to, to begin, uh, I'd be curious what led you down the path to study geography? Um, and then was there a particular moment that, that brought weather into play? Talk about uh, sort of how your interests came about. Yeah, I always grew up as a kid that was very interested in both science and the arts, particularly music. And But I had an equal passion for things like physics and chemistry. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, even senior year of high school. And then in 2005, a very deadly tornado uh, came across our city in Evansville, Indiana, and it hit a manufactured home park at 2 a.m. in the morning, November 5th, and it killed 23 people, and it killed a family friend, and I realized that, you know, I was very interested in that, and, and growing up, I always had a, a, a curiosity, but also a fear of storms, and ultimately, what I did was went to Indiana University to study music and to study art, and I was going to be a graphics design major or a classical guitar major, and then within a semester, I realized, you know, I, I really, it, it didn't feel right, and I ended up taking a weather class as a general education course, and I fell in love, and I thought, this is where I need to be. I did really well, and I enjoyed learning about the material, and the rest was history. I, I kind of stayed there for four years and uh, finished with my degree in geography, but that was the same department that housed a concentration in atmospheric science. Uh, so I didn't really have my full degree requirements when I graduated from Indiana to work at a place like the National Weather Service, but then I realized, well, you know, uh, maybe I can go get my master's degree and do research. And within about, you know, a month of being in uh, Northern Illinois University working on research, I realized that's where my passion was. And then the rest is kind of history from there. That's awesome. That's, I know, I, I know from my own vantage point, um, how hard it can be to just discover what you're passionate about. Um, and I, I feel you know similar as well. Um, I grew up in Ohio, um, and so severe weather events, none quite like what you experienced in Evansville, um, but that has an impact. Um, and might you say too, just, you know, obviously probably why there is a concentration of atmospheric science and geography, but geography and, and weather have so many so many connections it's all so so you know related because 
weather very much depends on geography weather is is what happens in your backyard yeah i would say that you know being in a you know three different or two different departments of geography and now three here at villanova with the department of geography and the environment is geography has its fingers everywhere um i have friends that work for walgreens that are gis analysts that help them site where they build new walgreens stores and it's all a geography question i have friends that work at the national weather center and friends that work for NOAA Federal and work uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland for the government. So what we find is that geography is, is, is a really good binder for a lot of sciences and arts. Um, I can pretty much relate anything geographical to any profession, even something like as simple as hospitals, like who uses the hospital? Why do they use it? What is the, what, how many people are using the hospital? Uh, who is uh, the best, the most visited and are visiting the hospital the most? All of those things are geographic questions that relate to society, the environment, etc. So it's a natural marriage. Um, and, and when it comes to atmospheric science, you can't separate it. If you think about how we communicate weather, we show you a weather map, which is geography. And if you think about uh, how people are being killed by tornadoes or hurricanes, it's social science. And if you think about how the atmosphere behaves, it's engineering and physics. So it's a very interdisciplinary study that uh, lends its hand really well to a lot of fields. Were you obsessed with maps as a kid, yes. uh, cartography, kind of? That's Yeah, I was the kid that when we would go on vacations and we'd drive from Indiana to Florida and for to go to the beach, uh, it was listen to music and look at the atlas right it was you know in the days before even MapQuest and now yeah, google yeah. and gps units it was it was the the big giant atlas that we could look at and i loved looking at maps and seeing places that wondering what was there and 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 even asking my dad or my mom to pull over and let's go look at this place or go to this park um these are all things that i think a lot of us share common traits in in the fields of both geography and meteorology totally can see that no i i used to collect them i i still you know still have some maps from the 90s uh in but it and and that's i i think that's natural and why because yeah weather all depends on location um that's very cool um so you mentioned your time both um as a uh, master's student and a phd student at northern illinois um i do want to mention in particular um in 2012 you won the most outstanding master's thesis award at northern illinois um could you talk about uh your research both as a master's student and then uh as a doctoral student as well at northern illinois what those research um, pieces encompassed yeah my master's time the two years well, a little bit less than two years time at Northern Illinois was was very important to me. It was critical to my development as a scientist and as someone who's a, a critical thinker about these interactions between society and weather because it hurts us. There's And it hurts us from a physical standpoint with deaths and injuries, but it also hurts us from an economic standpoint. So when I got to Northern Illinois University, I never thought I'd end up there. And I went to that school to work with a specific person, and that was Dr. Walker Ashley, who, who I I, I didn't go look at the school. I didn't even care about the school. I just wanted to work with him because I loved his research and it was what I wanted to do. And I got there and I didn't know exactly what my topics would be. Uh, I didn't know if I wanted to do things with tornadoes. And 
Lo and behold, uh, April 27th, 2011 came along, which was the, the super outbreak. It was the biggest tornado outbreak in, in U.S. history behind um, the 1974 super outbreak that, that was really famous and is still talked about. So it's really the second biggest outbreak in recorded history, and that was right in the middle of my master's time. So that ended up driving me to work on a thesis that was related to that. And one of the big things at the time in the um, sort of early 2010s or late 2000s was thinking about how lightning relates to tornado production. In other words, when you have lightning, which is no different than, say, when you get out of your car in the winter and you touch your door and you get shocked, the clouds build up that charge and how close those charge regions are to each other means you get a lightning strike or a lightning flash. Well, the storm is constantly evolving and the updrafts and downdrafts in a storm are very much related to the lightning but also related to the tornado so i did a study that said can we see if tornadoes are imminent based on how lightning how much lightning is being produced in the storm unfortunately um it was kind of a, a moot point mm -hmm. there really wasn't a good trend there and my thesis got published, but it wasn't a great thesis, I would argue. I mean, it was a lot of work, but I learned more about how to do science than anything. And that drove me to stay there for my PhD and pivot and start going into this realm of disasters and, and thinking more along the lines of societal impacts on people rather than being solely atmospheric science. Interesting, interesting. Is is forecasting something that, that you've ever pondered, obviously, and, and we'll, we'll get into your research areas, but um, making predictions, obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with all the different computer models, the, you know, the, the GFS, the Euro, the, yeah. um, but is that something that, that's that's interest to you? Uh, yeah, I until I came to, all the way up until I took the, the assistant professor position here in 2016 at Villanova, I taught students that that's what they were going to go do. They were going to go work for the National Weather service they were going to be on uh, tv and they would i taught forecasting that's what i did is is you know every day i'd put them up in front of the classroom and have them forecast for a city and talk about you know how models are right and wrong and and, and how they're useful in these situations and where they're not here and we even had them write forecast discussions that was what i thought i was going to do for a long time mm. and then about halfway through phd i was like well I'd, i i I really, really like teaching, and I really enjoy interacting with students, so I don't want to end up in a place like a national lab where I'm just doing research, but I also don't want to end up at the National Weather Service where I'm just forecasting. I mean, it's a great job, but it's it's a tough job. It's a very thankless job, and it's a lot of hard hours. They, you know, do uh, sort of shift work, yep, and... Yep. And, you know, they get paid decently and they, they enjoy it and people have a huge passion for it. There's more passion in the meteorology community than anywhere else, I think. it's. I mean, we literally have uh, one of the most famous podcasts is Weather Geeks. I mean, that's what we what we are calling ourselves. But I knew that that wasn't for me. And um, But I enjoyed teaching students how to do that. I wish I had more time to forecast. I have a lot of friends and family that go, hey, uh, <laughs> what's our weather look like? And I'm like, I don't know. I've been grading all day. So... <laughs> Yeah. No, I, you talk about a thankless job and, and you see, you know, social media. If I could be as wrong as the, you know, TV weather person, um, it's really tough. You, yeah. you could, you know, get day to day forecasts correct 99% of the time, but particularly here, you know, in the Northeast Mid Atlantic, that one snowfall where, you know, you predict six inches and it busts. Yeah. Um, you know, you could, you know, there's a couple of TV folks in Philly that, that are, will be infamous forever as a result of that. So, yeah. um, totally understand. Um, but, 
I think that, you know, that the passion for teaching spoke to you is so wonderful. Um, and that brings me to what led you to the main line here at, at Villanova. Yeah. Um, you know, when I graduated, or really when I was a PhD candidate, so I was done with classwork. I was just working on finishing my dissertation. I had already published two chapters and two manuscripts from my dissertation, and I was working on everything else to finish up. I knew that when I applied to positions, I wanted to be at a school where there was a nice balance between research and teaching. I didn't want to be at a school that we completely just taught one class a year. I wanted to teach multiple classes. I wanted to teach different variety of classes. And I wanted to work with students who wanted to get their hands dirty and, and do research. And um, I applied for uh, quite a few positions, but the position that stood out to me that I was fortunate enough to interview for and obviously get hired is here at Villanova in the Department of Geography and Environment, which has welcomed me and, and ultimately give me a place to continue my success and to build on my success. And, and I'm thankful for that. Um, I'm not from the Northeast. I'm from the Midwest. It was a big culture shock, right? It's, 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 you know, I grew up in a decent sized town, you know, of 150,000, but it's still different. And, and it's, it's a bit more to handle than, than it took me a while to get used to it, especially coming from two giant state schools to a small private school. And, uh, and I, I think of a school small at least, and, um, it was a big transition, but, I've, I've learned to lean into that, and we have a lot of really good students in our department that um, and make me enjoy coming into work and make me enjoy working with them and seeing them grow. It's, it's always my favorite part, favorite time of the year because I get to see how far they've come, but at the same time, it's sad to see them go. 100%. No, it's, you know, that is the, the, the beauty and sort of the curse of, you know, four years and, and you turn over and, and it's great because then you get to impact uh, the lives of new students. But, you know, seeing them go and seeing them go on to great things. But you had a hand in that. And that's, uh, that's really awesome. Yeah, and that's, you try. that's, you know, that's got to be a, a really rewarding part of the profession. Um, that's great. And we're so lucky to have you here. Um, let's then get into some of your research areas that that you've been able to conduct during your time here um and i think first and foremost um so again people think of when a tornado outbreak happens maybe you look into the why what were the ingredients you know atmospherically um you know warm air or you know humid air and out in front of a you know a frontal passage or, or whatever it might be um but I think it's just important, just as important. I think what your research is highlighting uh, some of these socioeconomic factors, um, and one of your research areas in particular uh, is the vulnerability of mobile and manufactured homes in these tornado outbreaks, particularly in the southeastern United States, which people may or may not be, you know, as familiar with as say the Great Plains. Um, such a tornado-prone area, particularly late winter, early spring. Um, what? turned you on to this particular research facet what are some of your takeaways and and you know could an event like this past march 24th the tornado outbreak down in mississippi rolling fork in particular 17 people were killed um could events like that um at least the impact be abated with better home construction yeah to sort of start at the beginning here is you know, one of the things that we have to remember is that disasters are largely based, they're social constructs. In other words, if we have a tornado that is 
in the middle of a field and not hitting anything, we don't call it a disaster. It's just a hazard. It poses a threat, but it hasn't hit anything. And it could be the widest tornado on record, which is what we saw in 2013. But if you take that same tornado and you move it 20 miles to the east, not even 20 miles, it's over the heart of Oklahoma City, which is now we're looking at the worst disaster in modern history, if not all of, of United States history. So when we think about disasters, we have to also understand the things that they are, are, are th those items and those people and those things, homes, vehicles, businesses that are exposed to tornadoes. So a lot of my research is focused on the other side of the disaster coin. There's great colleagues of mine that I still work with, and we're actually working on current projects that looks into climate change. But the other side of that is that our society's changing. If you close your eyes and imagine what Villanova looked like 50, 60 years ago, it's completely different. You know, I came here in 2016, and, and the, the new dorms, they're not even new anymore. It was a big parking lot. That's changed so much, and that's just one example. So now you have a tornado that is moving over uh, the top of a landscape that's been recently developed, and it's causing a disaster. Well, we worry about things that are not with, built to withstand tornadoes, and the best example of that is our homes. Our homes are can be built very, very well, but they can be built very poorly, and manufactured housing is one of those, those types of structures that we worry about, and the reason that we focus on them is because only about 6-7% of the U.S. housing stock is made up of manufactured homes. But if you look at where deaths occur in tornadoes, they're responsible or at least a factor in over 50% of deaths. So you have this very small housing type that is critical to leading to fatalities and, and injuries in these tornado events. So we focused a lot on that, and there's a lot of nuance there into that relationship between the tornado event and the structure itself. Fascinating, fascinating. And and the Southeast U.S. in particular mm -hmm. seems to be um, probably just the proliferation of these types of homes um, and the economic factors, yeah. poverty that 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 is, you know, prevalent in that region. Um, why the Southeast so much, would you say? Yeah. So, you know, as a scientist, you know, we think scientists go into the field and do grab data and collect data and have all this instruments. And there are those individuals in, in meteorology and geography that do that. But being someone who's a geographic information systems analyst or a GIS analyst, I can study things remotely. And that means I can work and teach in Villanova and Philadelphia, but I can also do research in the Southeast. Um, well, why the Southeast? Well, the Southeast is has a high number of manufactured homes. And this goes back to the way that they develop this laissez-faire development in the southeast where you don't have a lot of agriculture anymore to restrict development. So what you end up with is someone owns 10 acres of land and then they have a family friend that says, hey, I'll pay you so much money a month if you let us put a manufactured home on the corner of your plot of your land. And they'll say, yes. Now we have a manufactured home there. And then they let their cousins or their brother and sister, their parents. And you end up with these manufactured homes that are spread out through these rural areas of the southeast. Rural, you know, uh, Mississippi or Alabama. And what that means is we have a lot of manufactured homes, but they're also more spread out across the southeast. If you take a tornado and you run it across that landscape... The odds of it hitting a manufactured home are so much higher in the southeast than in, say, what we call Tornado Alley or the Central Plains, where you have mostly agricultural land that dominates. And that's a unique thing to the southeast. For instance, here in, in the Philadelphia suburbs, if we have a manufactured home, it's in a manufactured home park or community. 
That's not necessarily true in the Southeast. In fact, we found out that over 80% of manufactured homes in the Southeast are not actually in manufactured home communities. They're on isolated plots of land. And then that's just the structure. So where they're located, if we start thinking about who lives in those structures, that's the vulnerability of it. Those individuals tend to be more, um, they tend to live um, more frequently in poverty. They tend to have um, single family or single head of households. So a lot of single mothers that are raising multiple kids. They tend to live further away from resources like hospitals and community shelters if the tornado is coming. There's a lot of nocturnal tornadoes. It's, the list goes on and on and on. So it's not one thing that makes the Southeast highly prone to tornado deaths and disasters. It's a whole plethora of things. And I, I feel like, you know, as a result, um, you know, obviously that there's a, a distinguishing factor between tornado warnings, tornado watches, um, tornado watch, basically conditions are just favorable for development of tornadoes, tornado warning, um, radar indication or something has been spotted for folks living in such homes, a warning, would you say? probably too late at yeah. that point um is there you know responding to threats should 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 the messaging maybe from partners like the national weather service be different when factoring in higher percentages of mobile manufactured homes for for tornado events like this past march or obviously like a, an april 27th 2011 event uh, yeah, that's a really great question, and that's a tough one because we're that's where we're at right now. That's where the science is. Is is how can we actually get people to act? And what we ha what we find is during these disasters, we end up in a situation where cognitive biases come out, and by that I mean everybody thinks, oh, we got hit by a you know a, hurt, a tornado almost hit us last year. We're going to be okay for a few years, but Mother Nature doesn't care. It can we can get back to back hurricanes back-to-back -back tornadoes that that's not uncommon i mean they're rare events in nature and, and or rare events naturally but these biases allow us to cope and it's all about making sure that we can continue to live our lives and one of the most common ones is the fight or flight response so you're 100 percent right what we found was these manufactured homes are so much in these rural areas that their nearest community shelter that they could flee to when the tornado is coming is 20 minutes away well, the average lead time for a tornado warning, in other words, the tornado warning comes out, how far away is the tornado? Is about 13 to 15 minutes. So if you're more than 20 minutes away from your community shelter, what are you going to do? And I always think about, you know, well, first off, I should say that the recommended action right now that FEMA, the National Weather Service, NOAA, is if you're in a manufactured home, you need to get out. Tornado's coming. Your home is not safe. Mm. But where do they go? Yeah. So I think about this person. It's the single mother who's living in a rural manufactured home. She has no neighbors within a mile of her, which is not uncommon. They have two kids. Maybe the mother's disabled or is on disability. Maybe one of the kids is disabled. It's 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, and there's trees all the way around them. And here comes the tornado warning. And maybe their car won't actually start. So what do they do? They the fight or flight mechanism kicks in and then the next thing you know they're fighting and that could be the worst decision they make so what we've been pushing people to do is when the tornado watch comes out you need to have a plan and then watch comes out typically an hour or two before the warnings the warnings you know watch means conditions are ready warning means okay there's a tornado that's that's imminent well 
when the watch comes out, a lot of people can't just leave their job, leave their work. And if it's the middle of the night, it's hard to get people up and going. So, but you need to have a plan and you need to have, uh, start making plans and you have to be very weather savvy. And what I mean is everybody who lives in a manufactured home needs to become a weather geek. And that's because your safety depends on it. We've seen time and time again, where people leaving their homes have saved their lives, but we can't unfortunately interview the people that lost their lives and what made them make that decision. So it's a really important aspect. And notice that it's all separate from the meteorology. Mm. It's social science and geography. It's engineering. And that's what we see the field doing is becoming more interdisciplinary and more inter-science. And that's the only reason or the only way we're going to solve a potential tornado. And, and, and this is just one hazard. If we talk about hurricanes and flooding, same thing there is it, it takes a team of people, not just one particular study. That's that's so well said. Um, just again, tying in geography too. Um, I know James Spann, the mm-hmm. meteorologist down there uh, in in the Birmingham market, um, often talks about how it's challenging for his audience, his viewing audience at home. He shows on a map, you know, a storm, you know, thunderstorm cell or tornado warning, and many of his audience members would not be able to locate their town on a map of Alabama with all the counties. So, you know, the messaging and and obviously typically tornado warnings are around here, you know, Delaware County, Montgomery County, maybe the counties are are shifted into quadrants, but it's all very county based. Um, And there are, you know, with with mobile apps, there are push notifications, you know, and and obviously some social media. Now that that's, I know, come into Mm -hmm. uh, to some scrutiny. Um, But being able to get through to people the threat, you know, being in their backyard, and then obviously the struggle, you know, forecasting has gotten a lot better, but we can't pinpoint where a tornado yeah. is going to be in, you know, six or seven hours. That I, that obviously leads into the messaging, social science yep. challenge you're talking about. Uh, yeah, James is a, a great example of the importance of partners in the meteorology community. The National Weather Service issues the warnings, yes, but the communication of those warnings, particularly in central Alabama, James is the go-to authority. In fact, this, I've been told by multiple people down there, the saying is that when weather strikes, it's God and then James Spann, <laughs> and people love him, and he's very, very... A big, he's a big supporter of making sure that people in manufactured homes know the threats that they face. And he's also someone who is very big on making sure that you're weather aware. And it's not just a being weather aware when the tornado's coming. It's the hours, the days leading up to it. Something as simple as making sure that you have your plan ready to go, that your shelter, if you have one, is cleared out and ready to be accessed. So he's a, a great TV and media partner. And we, we found over the last decade or so is the critical importance of education through those individuals and it trickles down from meteorologists in the national weather service researchers like myself down into tv media but also emergency managers what we're learning is our partners at the emergency managers have the ability uh, partners in emergency management have the ability to go out to these communities and go out to these people before the tornado strikes we're talking months ahead and to say hey do you have a NOAA weather radio that'll wake you up in the middle of the night if there's a tornado coming because that's still a big issue is if you're 2 a.m you're not going to hear the sirens you're not going to get the warning so you need a an alarm clock which is a NOAA weather radio that when the warning is headed towards you it wakes you up giving them one 
and making sure that, where are you going to go if there's a tornado? Do you have a family friend? Do you have a church? Do you have a religious institution that you can rely on? And that saved a lot of lives. And people aren't going to listen to me as someone, you know, at Villanova University in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but they'll listen to James. So uh, that's a really critical part that we're starting to leverage more and more. And I think that that is going to become more consistent going forward. That's um, very well said. You know, probably, you know, I should, as common as a, as a smoke detector, mm-hmm. having a, a NOAA weather radio uh, program properly to, to your particular county, um, particularly in areas where tornado outbreaks are, are not uncommon. Um, you yourself, um, yes, maybe, you know, the public wouldn't know you as, you know, as much as James Spann, but bringing attention to this issue on several platforms, uh, particularly following uh, the Mississippi tornado outbreak in March. Um, I saw Marshall Shepard, yeah. a very well-respected atmospheric scientist. Um are you seeing any progress as far as from builders, as far as from communities um, working toward improving manufactured home infrastructure? Uh, would you say there's any progress being made there? I wish there was more. Um, a little bit of history about the manufactured housing industry. Prior to 1974, it was a free-for-all. There was no codes, no regulations. You could live in a shed and put some wheels on it and call it a manufactured home. But after that, FEMA, HUD stepped in and said, we need to have some standards here. We're seeing more pop up, particularly in Florida. And these standards aren't built, these homes aren't being built to a standard that would hold up against a weak hurricane and specifically uh, a weak tornado as well. So they said, well, you know, let's try to improve it a little bit. Well, along comes Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And Hurricane Andrew pretty much destroys Miami, Dade County. It's it's a very unique hurricane. It's not a very big one. It's not like mm-hmm. Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina where it had a lot of water. It was a lot of wind. And what it ended up doing was causing a lot of damage to manufactured homes and a lot of deaths that way. So HUD and the Housing and Urban Development and, and FEMA got together and said, we're going to make the requirements much stronger for manufactured homes. And they drew this map. And that map essentially said the closer you live to the coast, coastline the gulf coast the atlantic coast the stronger the building codes need to be for manufactured homes but all homes and um, the further you got away you would go from zone three to two to one and when you're about 100 miles away from the coastline you no longer have those strong requirements but that was aimed at hurricanes Mm. and hurricane winds are a little bit different than tornadoes they're more horizontal they're more sustained they're less gusty they don't have as much debris tornadoes themselves tend to have a vertical wind component so they can not only blow it blow things sideways they can pull things up there's a pressure thing it's much different and that law in 1994 when it was passed only really helped those built in florida those manufactured homes well we saw the importance of that law when it came to hurricane ian this past year when the tornado hit florida the homes that were built particularly manufactured homes to those new codes did really well But most of the tornadoes in the United States don't occur along the coastline. They occur in Kansas and Alabama and and Mississippi and Arkansas. So those codes don't help those individuals. So what we try to push for is we try to push for more strict local building codes. And when it comes to manufactured home safety, it really comes down to the anchoring of the structure to the ground, which is all engineering. So here I am as a geographer, as a meteorologist, talking about engineering. This is what I do is I work with a lot of people that focus on this problem and it's a team of people 
what we find is that fatalities deaths occur in manufactured homes when the home is picked up and thrown and the only way to prevent that manufactured home from doing that is to anchor it and tie it to the ground more strongly and we need better steel straps and better anchoring systems unfortunately the codes and the laws that are there in place right now mean that the person buying the home doesn't have to have those there's nothing enforcing them and more importantly even if you buy strong anchoring for your home it could corrode and and break down in five years because it's so humid and hot in the southeast so you need to have it regularly inspected all this is money and these people that live in manufactured homes most of them already don't have the money That's- so we're left with this like chicken or the egg problem or this paradox and we found this out we actually interviewed hundreds of manufactured home residents all throughout the southeast and we found this paradox those that can flee their home and can get to shelter don't choose to do so because their homes are sturdy and strong those that know they need to flee their shelter like manufactured homes or flee their home i should say to get to shelter lack the ability to do it they lack the self-efficacy so they know their homes aren't safe but there's nothing they can do about it so what we've seen is groups that have tried to improve the anchoring and of these homes and the quality the construction quality has greatly improved since the 70s but the materials used for these homes for double wide or single wide manufactured homes just aren't still not as strong as a permanent home and the big problem is where they're being put on the ground and how they're being anchored or lack thereof so what we find is that people that ask me hey my family has a manufactured home in alabama my mother my my mother-in-law lives in one or something what can we do to ensure safety i say pretend like you live in miami dade county that you are going to build yours to zone three requirements from fema and that's what you should do and they're like well how do we pay for it and then they have to go do the research on their own find grants and things and and it's not it's not easy and then the last thing i'll say on this this long-winded answer is we've talked to people and said well what if we just put more community shelters in the southeast and they were like we can't afford it these counties in mississippi people don't understand how poverty stricken these are if you drove through some of these places you know we're very i feel very privileged being here in the philadelphia suburbs and living in my apartment and it's, it's nice but we're talking about people without running water electricity no cell phones that's the reality of these counties a lot of times and we're asking them hey can you build a forty thousand dollar or fifty thousand dollar if you're lucky uh tornado shelter and they're going no if we had that money we'd fix our roads our bridges our schools you know we'd fix our communities our parks so they don't have it and there is programs out there that help that from the federal standpoint but there's still not enough so it's a lot of volunteer work that's going on and and i don't know what the solution is because to me it comes down to money and if you talk about where's the money coming from in the south it means taxes mm-hmm. and if you if you politician or you you run on the idea that you want to raise taxes for this mm, good luck so it's a very difficult problem but notice what we haven't mentioned it's not a meteorological problem it's a societal problem and that's the reality of it even if we predicted the tornado down to the second where it's going to be how do we get that person to act so it's tough that's eye-opening that's really no and it's so true i think uh even if you take you know a, a trip down south and and you know if you spend it's one thing to spend time in in a city like you know jackson or hattiesburg yeah. or, or any you know oxford where the university is but you take a trip 15 20 miles out um and it's just you know it can be way different 
than anything we're used to that again that, that we're very uh, very blessed up here to um, but that's reality um, and so you know even yeah even something like a shelter that money you know could easily just be going for basic needs yeah. basic functioning you know pipes roads infrastructure yeah. so it's a hard sell it's a really hard sell well to put it in perspective i think that this this is what made my eyes light up a little bit is uh, in 2017 2018 we held what we call an integrated warning team workshop in southern central alabama what that means is County emergency managers from Alabama, National Weather Service from Birmingham and Huntsville, and researchers like myself all get together, and public officials, politicians. And we talk about, you know, severe weather in our research, and we talk about, particularly we discussed our manufactured home research and why it was important in that region of the country. And the topic of, hey, is the NOAA weather radio dead? Do we not need that anymore? Because we now have these things called wireless emergency alerts. Most of anybody listening to this, if you've been in a tornado warning and you had your cell phone, you got that text message that says tornado warning. And it's called a WIA, wireless emergency alert. And the idea was, why are we pushing why are we pushing NOAA weather radios if we all have smartphones and cell phones and can get these text messages? And three or four county emergency managers from rural Alabama popped up and said, doesn't work. Half our county doesn't have cell phone coverage. Mm. Half my people in my county don't have cell phones or don't have smartphones. They don't get text messages. And it made me realize that we're dealing in a different world here. It, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. That's you know where I think just to begin bringing the awareness to it, and like you said, that this is beyond just a science issue, a meteorological issue, um, I think is so valuable. Um, I just want to circle back to to one other sort of related topic, but um, you know you talked about how um, tornado damage. Um, it's not so much the strength of the tornado using yeah. the uh, Oklahoma City example versus I, I believe that was the EF five in twenty thirteen. Um, and I know in the weather community, and, and speaking probably specific to weather Twitter, um, there's a lot of times how strong was the tornado? Yeah. Um, you know there hasn't been an EF five since that more Oklahoma yeah. tornado in May 2013. Um, is is there too much focus toward tornado strength? Um, obviously, classification and, and damage is uh, the, the enhanced Fujita scale, uh, scale I'll just mentioned mm -hmm. for our listeners, uh, which is originally derived from the Fujita scale uh, developed by uh, Ted Fujita back in, in the 1970s. Um, but tornado strength is obviously important, but, it, but it's much more so where it hits is it not uh, yeah so um there's been this big push in the last year or so on social media where you have a lot of storm chasers out there and it's become a very in my opinion problematic thing um and by that i mean that we have a lot of people that are getting way too close to the tornado and there's been numerous accidents yes that's, in fact yep. i woke up this morning and yep. there's a chance that a storm chaser got too close and the vehicle was tossed and that's not the way it's been as someone who's storm chased quite a number of times and and i don't do it as much anymore because it's so dangerous to so many people out there but the benefit of having them out there is that they can take pictures and they can take photos and that allows us to interrogate the event and see what happened well when we rate tornadoes we don't rate them in real time we always rate them and the fujita scale is something that allows just for our, for the listeners 
we only can infer wind speeds from the damage that occurs. So a tornado has to hit something for us to understand the damage. If we look at a, a house and we see that it's been pulled off its foundation and it's built a certain way, there's this it's all digital now, but it used to be this big binder. You'd open it up and you'd say, I'd go to a house. And then inside that, I'd say, this is the type of house. This is the way it was built. And it would tell me, if the damage looks like this, we rate it wind speeds of 150 miles per hour. And that puts it, you know, in the EF3 range or whatever. So we do that, and the National Weather Service is the ones that go do this after the event. Well, what people are doing now is we're seeing pictures of homes that are swept clean and they're going, that's EF5 damage. And then if you actually have an engineer go do the damage survey, they're like, no, it's not because we can't tell what the winds were because the structure failed at 110 miles per hour. The, it wasn't built right, it wasn't anchored to the ground right, the walls were poor construction, bolts didn't behave, they were ripped, they, you know, they were corroded, and it's like sort of we can't rate it higher if it didn't withstand the weak part of the winds and in fact a lot of going to relate what we previously talked about a lot of manufactured homes are being tossed and people inside of them on the weak parts of the tornado because mm. at the core of a tornado the winds are the strongest towards the edges of the tornado the wind field weakens but these manufactured homes can't even make it through the weak wind mm. field so they're getting tossed and then then the worst of the tornado comes so what we have to be aware of is that a picture can lie to us. That's why it's important to have engineers and experts on topic when it comes to this. So, um, you know, a great example of this where it came to, to a problem in the meteorological community is 2013, the El Reno tornado, which is the widest tornado on record. It's two and a half miles wide. It was more than one tornado. It had a lot of satellite tornadoes around the larger circulation. Unfortunately, two very good storm chasers, three very good storm chasers that I've met and talked to numerous times that were very experienced got caught into mm -hmm. one of those satellite tornadoes and killed unfortunately and they were doing research and and um but this tornado was really wide and it was west of oklahoma city and it didn't hit anything really it hit a few corn silos or grain silos it hit a few power lines but it really didn't hit much and based on the fujita scale process it was rated an ef3 so of a, a significant tornado but not a violent tornado but at the same time, we had these Doppler on wheels, which are the Doppler radar trucks that were shooting it. And they were literally uh, not shooting it, but they were shooting the, the pulse, the beam at sure. the tornado itself. And they were only a couple you know, meters above the ground when they were looking at the winds in the Doppler radar. And they said the winds were much greater than EF3. What do we what so what do we rate it? So what's the solution? The solution is is we're not gonna just drive around hundreds of thousands of Doppler on wheels are very expensive and it's very dangerous and it's not always perfect either because they can't always see right near sure, the ground. Sure. So it becomes this who cares? Let's just build our structure stronger regardless. And I always think it's a big red herring in the world. And engineers will say, well, we need to know what the winds are in reality so we can design. Well, we know where the maximum is. Let's go there. So there's good groups like the Insurance Institute for Building and Housing Standards that work with insurance companies. That f Insurance companies actually fund this group. They have this big wall of wind. It's a big, giant... Uh, think of it as a warehouse that they blow they build homes and then they just blow air wow you know hundreds of miles per hour and they they film it and then they look at the engineering and see how the home fell apart and then we've learned that through the groups like that that a permanent home 
if you just reinforce the garage door and spend $200 to make sure it's more sturdy and to have this certain bar that goes across, it could be the difference between your house just having damage or being completely destroyed because it's a weak point where the wind hits the garage door, it blows it in. And that's just something that a lot of people that are building homes now are going, that's a good, I'm going to do that. It's well worth it because, and, and so little things like that are mattering. So the, the idea is, is that who cares what the tornado is rated? If the homes are failing on the outer edges of the tornado anyway, we got a bigger problem. Um, that's how I feel about it. But at the same time, um, there is a place for that and we could improve that and we're continuing to improve that as we go forward so true and and again i you mentioned and again it's just the nature of social media but um a viral photo you know right after a a tornado strikes or you know showing a house and again it comes back to construction um and immediately somebody's posting oh that's got to be ef4 that's got to be um and you know let the seasoned engineers go out there and take a look and obviously let the uh, national weather service assess um but i think you know having a group of chasers go, mm-hmm. you know, on scene and there could be some benefits, but it also, you know, sharing information and, and it's true with, with so many different things on social media, um, yeah. but immediacy is not always great in that regard, but I think it well, comes back. It's the classic Dunning-Kruger effect, which we won't, you know, I don't want to get into, but at the same time, like what we see is anybody can look at a picture and provide a comment. And, and what we have to realize is that there's people that have spent their lives dedicated to understanding this give them time to actually rate it and discuss it. And and re- remember that in science, we don't like to deal in complete absolutes. You know, we're not Sith Lords, right? We are, we like to think about in terms of confidence, 95% confidence, right? So we, we very rarely are 100% confident in things. So there's always a bit of wiggle room. Sure. And, and, you know, there's, there's unknown still. Otherwise, if everything was known and we knew everything, I wouldn't be in this seat right now. That's, so. that's what research is is all about a hundred percent uh want to touch on on another research area of yours um we you you hinted at it a little bit yeah. um with population dispersing and 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 so the what what you call um the bullseye effect targets um being humans and their possessions um spreading to different places that maybe even 50 years ago um using the example of mobile homes in the south Mm -hmm. um but that could also be various spots in the plains or uh population changes can you talk a little bit about the the bullseye effect and how that's becoming you know maybe not the number of tornadoes is increasing but the amount of people in the paths of these storms are yeah i i can't mention this without discussing the going back to what we first started talking about with phd and advisors and and mentors is is dr walker ashley at northern illinois university um when i became a phd student he you know we talked and he said i got this idea and this idea is is to look at how chicago has expanded over time and and chicago is a very unique metropolitan area because it can't really expand east into the lake sure yet we'll see (laughs) um but in general it's sort of like what we call a bow wave so you can think of like a ship as it goes through the water it creates a bow wave on the front and if you look at population changes in chicago it kind of behaves like that people are spreading outwards towards the west in all directions 
And we said, well, there in 1990, there was the Plainfield tornado. It was the F5 tornado in August, and it was a very unique tornado. But it did very, very, it was one of uh, Ted Fujita's last storms that he surveyed and flew over. And and Ted Fujita was at the University of Chicago. And, and at this point, he was starting to get more well-known than any other point in his life. And it got a lot of media attention. And it was a very violent tornado. But we asked the question, what, what would happen if this same tornado occurred today? And we were like, well, the tornado wouldn't change, but the population, Plainfield looks, it's grown up now. It's huge, much bigger, but that's happening everywhere. So him and I, and really it's his brainchild and I just took it and and, and we worked on it together and it became a big focus of, of my research and still is. The idea of the expanding bullseye effect is that even if you don't have climate change altering the tornadoes, if you don't have anything to do with the atmosphere changing at all, and tornadoes that occurred 100 years ago are just like today, just because of our expanding society, our expanding what we call our built environment footprint, homes, businesses, structures, that's that urban sprawl. As that's happening throughout the country and the world for that matter, that tornado that again went through the middle of a cornfield and didn't hit anything is now going through the heart of a subdivision and what the importance of this is is not just how many people but it's also the geography so we come full circle it's the it's the sprawling nature that geographical sprawl across the landscape that is leading to greater and greater impacts so when we call it the expanding bullseye effect the analogy is is much like an air uh, an archer pulls back its their bow and arrow and releases the arrow if the target's the size of a quarter, the odds of hitting that if they close their eyes are small. But if that quarter becomes the size of you know a 10 by 10 wall, the odds of hitting something are much greater if they close their eyes and release the arrow. So that tornado becomes the arrow, and then the population is, is really the bullseye. So what we're getting at here is, is what I said at the very beginning, which is these disasters are a combination of both the environment and society. Mm. And what we see time and time again with the expanding bullseye effect, not just with tornadoes, but with hurricanes, you see people moving in droves to the coastline. We saw with Hurricane Sandy, we saw with Hurricane Ian, Hurricane Katrina. People want to live near the water, but living near the water comes with consequences. In fact, the saying is that those that live near the water eventually have to live in the water. So we've seen the expanding bullseye effect as a factor with tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, flash flooding, I've even done stuff on volcanic uh, eruption exposure in the Pacific Northwest. We've done, I've done things here at Villanova on wildfires and the expanding bullseye effect. It's a factor in just about every single hazard that we're facing. The scary part of this is our knowledge on how climate change is influencing the hazards themselves, like flooding and drought and tornadoes, is getting better, and we're seeing that it's, it's a multiplicative effect. We have this double-sided, two-headed dragon mm-hmm. now where you have a changing environment because of climate change and you have a changing societal landscape. And together, that coupled means more disasters, more economic loss, but potentially more loss of life if we don't get better at the engineering, the social science. So I don't know a way to stop the economic losses going up. But I know that we can save lives if we get better about communicating. So I tend to focus on the saving lives portion, whereas an economist might focus on how do we reduce the cost. That's a harder thing for me. And I, they're both equally hard in different ways, but that's the whole idea of that, that expanding bullseye effect.
No doubt, no doubt. And, and you know, you were mentioning, you know, hurricanes as well. And, and you think of the growth, mm. the Houston area, just oh. uh, how the explosion there. And, and just obviously, you know, thinking back to Harvey in, in 2017 and just how flood, pl- flood prone um, Harris County is um, in any sort of, of tropical event. Yeah. But people are and. You know, I know I think there's been some studies done since the pandemic or uh, maybe even a little before, but people just migrating south as well. Yeah. House, and, and so it's these it's this conglomeration of factors in the climate state that we're in right now. And so that's yeah. that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Um, wanted to ask you just about um, a little you know, more local climate scene here in, in the uh, Philadelphia area, the Delaware Valley. Um, and I know it's it's always a slippery slope to point to individual weather events and, you know, claim something broader as far as the climate goes. Climate is not weather. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for anybody who, who's lived in this area for, for a while, um, you would take heed of the amount of tornadoes that have taken place um, really since 2019. But but I think in particular, it was uh, the year 2021, the summer 2021. Uh, we had the EF3 in, in Ben Salem in, in yep. Bucks County. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, September 1st with the Ida remnants. Um, I live in South Jersey. So yep. seeing the, the video of uh, the Mullica Hill tornado yep. looking like something out of, you know, Western Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we just had a, a, a very sizable outbreak uh, in early April with, with nine confirmed tornadoes in, in the Mount Holly, New Jersey, the, the National Weather Service that serves this area, their CWA, their, their warning area, um, including uh, a tornado death uh, in yeah. Delaware, uh, which is the, the second one since 1950. Um, but, the, but the numbers are, are pretty eye-opening. Um, yeah. Do you draw any conclusions to this this local Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware tornado uptick since 2019. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's a great question, and it's something that I think about quite a bit. Um, research, you know, from a good colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Victor Gensini, who's also at Northern Illinois, has done some research, and, and we're working on projects right now that are related to this. It then showing that the number of days where we get tornadoes is shifting slightly to the east. But that shift isn't necessarily over the Philadelphia region. It's not over this this part of the the country. It's more focused near Memphis and in, in, in the south, the mid south, mm. which is concerning, obviously, based on everything we've talked about. But for us, you know, I had a student. I actually had a freshman that came in, and through the freshman match program here at Villanova, I had her investigate uh, what's going on with our tornado season. What's going on with tornado events here in in what we call the Mount Holly County Warning Area, which is, you know, parts of Pennsylvania, parts of New Jersey, and, and Delaware, and so on. Well. What we found was that 2019, I believe, and 2020 were big-time outliers, like like four or five standard deviations above what we normally get. So when I see that, I first think, eh, we very rarely see jumps like that in nature. So it's probably a true outlier. And then we had another year, another year. So now we're getting to the point where it's really hard to tell. From a statistical standpoint, it's still a blip in the radar. It's, sure. it's, it's not really anything that, that I would say is climate change related. But every year that happens, we start getting more confident and something's going on. I think that, you know, part of this is, is our viewpoints. Um, we, you know, 
tornadoes have occurred long before we were here they're going to occur long after we're here and and by that i mean is in this region you know whatever happens happens but so what we tend to be is very short-sighted and thinking oh you know last year was the worst winter ever that's what my dad says right every every <laughs> winter is the last winter ever so and in this case we start looking at this and go well there's not really much we can say about climate change but it is very curious and i think the the takeaway here is that we have to wait and see it's very difficult we call this climate attribution science mm -hmm. and we're at the very infancy of it the hard part is that how do you know that climate is affecting the weather until it's too late and we're not to the point where we can point at a tornado and go this was a result of climate change we don't know if it would occur with or without so what we're trying to do and there's great researchers out there that are doing this is trying to see what the characteristics will be like in a cooler world and versus a warming world so they're playing these games and almost like sort of like being a chemistry student in a lab trying to hold something constant and let something else change and right now we're not sure what's going on um the i think the the takeaway though is that we can get tornadoes here we've had them before in fact we can go up to i, I can't remember what year it was but there was a northern pennsylvania outbreak which was a very deadly tornado outbreak um in the last few decades we've seen long track tornadoes go through boston and we've seen new york city being under tornado warnings before and had tornadoes hit parts of northern manhattan so it's not unheard of they're just extremely rare and the difference is is instead of getting one every year like say the central plains or the southeast we may get one every five years and what i always tell people is just be aware of the world around you you know i'm very big supporter and and I tell our students this a lot of times is I say it's okay when you're walking to class and when you're you know you're out and about look up every once in a while look around you be have some social and, and geographic awareness of where you're at and doing that from a weather standpoint could allow you to sort of say oh maybe I should make sure my flashlight batteries are up, you know replaced or and and where is my shelter where would I go oh do I go to my bathroom my closet I think that that this is an eye-opener event that says hey you know we can get tornadoes we need to be aware of them here but whether it's a trend and whether we know that it's not an outlier to be determined and that's the frustrating part is i can't say more than that it's just rare events but um the science is suggesting that we are seeing effects of climate change on severe weather both tornadoes and hail as well as straight line winds and uh it's not looking uh like it's going to get better mm. unfortunately very well said and and i feel like so true just just being weather aware um you know and and again with the beauty of of, of the smartphone yeah. pop up a, an app uh, i happen to love radar scope yeah, um you exactly. don't you don't you don't need something that's sophisticated but but it's um because you know that could save you you don't want to be on the road yeah. uh, you know we've had certainly flooding events I, I think about you know some of the floodwaters during that ida um the remnants uh the the pictures of the vine street expressway and, and things like that and, and you know yep. just taking taking one or two minutes out of your day um um, and so true, I, I feel like, you know, the science would tell us don't push the cart before the horse is drawing conclusions from events like this. 
that said, um, there's certainly, you know, beyond the, the tornado outbreak here, yeah. um, you know, overall trends that, that are definitely concerning. Yeah. So um, also true. Um, and, and, and Dr. Strader, I just wanted to ask you about, about the teach the uh, courses that, that you are teaching, uh, including, I believe, four different courses this past semester yeah. at Villanova. Um, talk about your curriculum. Do you have do you have a favorite? Uh, yeah, um, I love teaching my natural hazards course. Um, it's a three thousand level course uh, taught, uh, and I get a variety of probably half of our GEV majors. The other half are uh, engineers, business, just people interested, computer scientists. Uh, it always fills. I always have to add people into it, and that's because I approach the the natural hazards teaching a lot different than a classic natural hazards course. Typically, the way natural hazards is taught is here's what a volcano is, here's what a tornado is, here's where hurricanes are, and so on. And it's just a, a laundry list of what things that threaten us. But I approach it from a standpoint of what we've talked about, which is what is risk? What is vulnerability? What is exposure? What is sustainability and susceptibility? What are all these different terms? And what we do is dissect very specific events in history, and we talk about why the disasters are more complicated than just saying it was a bad tornado. And a good example that we use, and, and it's getting a bit old, but it's still modern day sort of what I think of as being an example of all this, which is Hurricane Katrina mm. when it hit New Orleans. Unfortunately, a lot of our students now are getting to the point where they're- Frightening. They, yes, yes, <laughs> they don't know what that is. But I tell them, I was like, if you go to New Orleans, you'll see the remnants of it. The biggest building in New Orleans is still sitting empty today dark it's kind of creepy like some dark bowser castle in the night that. Wow. <laughs> because wow. of katrina wow. so and i tell people i'm like imagine you had a disaster that was worse than 9 11 and it was due to a hurricane like that's what it was and i think that in terms of loss of life in terms of economic impact it's huge so we use that as, a, as, as an example in the class, but we talk about other things too, like something as simple as Hannibal, Missouri, which is where famous for Mark Twain, is when they built the levee system, they built it around the parts of the city that were well-to-do and were at higher economic status, exposing the other poorer parts of the city to flooding and of course if you've ever get, got into a hot tub what happens when you push the water down or elsewhere it goes somewhere else and where did it go into these poverty-stricken areas so what i try to do is show them that these disasters the stage can be set centuries decades before the actual event and i get the students thinking deeply about solutions to this and i love that course because uh, students always provide their very unique perspectives and now as someone who's in their mid-30s and is still fairly a young professor i'm starting to finally see the generational differences in how they perceive things and like for instance if i ask my students hey now, when's the last time any of you watched a TV meteorologist? They're like, what's TV? That right? is so, <laughs> so... I. They don't know that. They get it from their phone. They get it from social media, which changes how they perceive this information. So it's an ever-moving landscape, uh, and it's a moving target. So I love that course. I teach courses um, in our physical geography space. Uh, geography, the Earth's Environments, is a general education course. It's a course that we've said that it's a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a very sort of like here's the things in our physical geography world that we talk about and deal with. And it sets the stage for further information. Like, for instance, we talk about hydrology. Students might love that section of the course and go take a hydrology course. And then, of course, the, the other part that I um, 
the other area I teach in in GEV is our geographic information systems, our GIS courses. I'm teaching a new course on um, geographic information systems applications in environmental science. So what that whole course is designed to do is designed to make sure that people understand how to solve a problem or how to investigate an issue in the environment with GIS. A great example that I have them do that's related to what we talk about is I have them create a climatology of tornadoes, a spatial climatology. And then I say, what are the most tornado prone regions of the country? And they write their answers and they create maps and do all kinds of spatial analysis. And then I have them plot vulnerability data mm. and looking socioeconomics and poverty. And I say, where are the most vulnerable places? And then I say, well, let's put those together. And I help them investigate problems at the local, regional, and national scale, and even global scale with like climate change and ocean temperatures from a GIS standpoint. And what I mean by that is a statistician can, you know, just use a bunch of numbers and, and go into a spreadsheet or go into some type of database and calculate statistics of change. But one of the things we know about climate change and what we know about hazards is that there's a spatial element and GIS is the tool to do that. We all use them every day when we turn on Google Maps or Waze on our phone. And what we use is we use that to our advantage to do analysis. So our students walk out of GEV with this sense of a, a skill set. It's a skill set that they can go to a company and say, hey, you guys are thinking about investigating these wells on this property to look for contamination. Let's, let me do a GIS map and, and, and analysis for that. And, and that's, that's really the three realms I teach in, in our department that's it's it is so that that gis knowledge that is you know as um, looking at at different you know job postings or that is so cross-discipline yeah. having that in your back pocket um going beyond mm -hmm. and and just for you said because so many um so many different businesses so many yeah. different industries require particularly as, as things expand and maybe are more data driven yeah. um having that geographical knowledge so um those are wonderful courses it's um you know these just like total gems of our, our curriculum here um so that's that that's just awesome um I think, you know, I think everything that that the geography, the geography and environment department is doing here is is, is just just phenomenal. Um, could you even, you know, in the future, see maybe, you know, more of a, you know, I don't want to say atmospheric science track here at Villanova, but do you see more program offerings as potentially in, in the future here? Yeah, so I would say that in GEV, we are small, but we are mighty. We have a lot of really good professors that have brought in a lot of money through grants and, and almost all of our, we just had our senior banquet uh, dinner for all our graduating seniors. And and it's amazing the things that they have gone on to do and what they've done over four years and, and where they're going. It's really impressive. And I think that's a testament to a lot of us in that department that are, most of us are teaching, you know, two, three classes a semester and, and doing our research. And, and almost I can't think of anybody in that department that's doing research without students. So I think that going forward, we will probably expand our courses a little bit. Uh, if You know, given the personnel and, and, and the help and the assistance of new hires and things like that, there's just, you know, I don't know if you've been to Mendel Hall lately, but it's 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 crowded. There's a lot of it space. Is. There's, there's not is. a lot of space left. Yep. So but we are. Um, I don't think we'll ever have an atmospheric science program. And that's because we're not going to compete with the Millersville, the Rowans, the Penn State, sure. the Rutgers. Sure. These are full-on atmospheric science programs that require 
a very specific curriculum. Uh, for instance, to work in the National Weather Service, there's a list of courses you have to have. Things like atmospheric dynamics, which is a fluid dynamics course. That's a that's a course that I don't want to teach. That's for sure. I took it, and I you know I got A's in it, and I was I ran away. Right, it was difficult. But then there's other courses like atmospheric physics, and 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 they're just forecasting courses. So to meet the accreditation, it's a lot. Um, so I don't I don't even know if that's my goal anymore, and and I don't even think it was ever my goal when sure. I came here. And and in fact, I think based on everything I've talked about here today. I don't think that's doing our students necessarily a service because, for instance, I've seen a lot of people get jobs at the National Weather Service in recent years. A lot of my former students, when I was a Ph.D. student teaching at Northern Illinois, and one of the main things that they do is GIS at the National Weather Service because the old guard that's there doesn't know how to do it. So I think that I prefer to live in this what I call the in-between world. It's the interdisciplinary world where I can go work with you know, someone like Lisa, Dr. Lisa Rodriguez down in, uh, down the hall where she does coral reef research and we can look at climate change. I can work with someone like Dr. Nat Weston who does wetlands research and salt, salt water marshes and, and freshwater marshes up in Brigantine or not Brigantine up in, um, uh, Cape Cod area and so on. So I like to work with those people where I can find out where the, there's multiple things going on and our students like that too so um i don't know if we need it and and honestly we have a lot of forecasters i think that the world's going to be more going forward more well-rounded and it's going to be more general environmental science and geography with people people who have meteorology experience but necessarily aren't meteorologists i think that's that's the uh I don't see that as a bad thing. I sort of a hybrid model and, yeah. and, and sort of, you know, because understanding the trends, I, I, I think that's great. I think that's um, the last last thing uh, we, we, we want to leave with um, talking about, you know, coming here from the Midwest and, and mm -hmm. you know, acclimating yourself. What is your what is your ideal climate to live in? <laughs> yeah. So. I'm not a huge fan of winter as someone who lived in Northern Illinois for six years. So, the, the, old, the older I get, the more yeah. I agree with you, the more I, <laughs> I appreciate a good snowfall, but then it can melt really fast. I'm okay. Same. It just makes 100%. my life a little bit harder, 100%. but I also hate the humidity. So I, and, but then again, I kind of like, if you live in a place without winter and without humidity, you're looking at like San Diego, which is, you know, pretty much no weather. That's right? Yeah. So boring. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I think that I just deal with the good and deal with the bad. Um, the rule is, is you don't want to be living where the tornadoes occur. You want to live next to where they occur. So easy to get to. Know, <laughs> yes. It's like, it's like you're, you know, like you want to play with your friend's dog, but you don't necessarily want to have a dog. It's a lot of responsibility. So, um, I, I think that, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. I've never really thought about where I'd want to be. I, I tend to have a bigger worldview than most because of the way I do science. I don't need to be into the in the field. In other words, I don't need to be at University of Oklahoma. I don't need to be at University of Kansas to study these. I don't need to be at you know Alabama Huntsville sure. and NASA working on this. No, I can study it from Villanova because of the GIS and, and different skills. So uh, my ideal uh, location. I wish we got more storms here. You know, I live in the world where when I say oh today was a good day for storms it was probably a bad day for most yeah. because it means that some something got destroyed or something but i i i tend to um 
do a lot of photography that of this of the atmosphere and particularly clouds and storms so uh, i try my best to get out to the great plains the storm chase every once in a while it's getting harder for me as i get older mainly from financial reasons but also i can't just drive six hours west from illinois and be chasing no i have to drive 12 hours then another six so so yeah i i um i miss you know growing up in the i I think i took took a um for granted growing up in the midwest with the storms that we had and how that shaped what i viewed uh severe weather threats as a kid and we don't have that as much here but you know we've had some some impressive storms so i think that if push came to shove i want to live somewhere where we get four seasons i need change otherwise i think i would get bored (laughs) I agree with you. I, I actually, the more I, I, I do kind of like our climate. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the winters, obviously, we, we didn't really have one yeah. this past, uh, um, but are tolerable, yet there is always the nor'easter threat. Yes. Um, and I'd like to see, well, safely, a little bit more thunderstorm activity in the summer. Um, but the last couple, you know, April was, was pretty active. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if we, you know, get back into a warmer pattern here. Um, but and, and on my bucket list for sure <laughs> is to do a plane storm chase. Yeah. I, I haven't had the opportunity, but yeah. um, Dr. Strader, this was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, we'd love to do, you know, maybe get more into some of your thoughts on climate, things of that nature. Certainly. Uh, but this was so rewarding for us. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate everybody listening to. Um, I'm, you know, the last thing I'll say here is that I'm a huge believer that I don't want to do research that sits in a paper in some library. I want my research to be out there in the public's hands. I want my knowledge to help someone. And that's how I feel a sense of purpose is to help people. And the only way to do that is to talk to people like yourself and and to let listeners hear some of the things that are going on here at Villanova, but some of the things that I'm very passionate about that affect us people so um i really do appreciate your time thanks for having me it's you are a a total asset to to this university it's a complete it's been great you know i can talk about this stuff Uh, (laughs) thanks dr strader thank you again uh this has been another episode of wxvu's profcast podcast series it's been a pleasure doing these all semester long we'll have more for you uh next semester as well my name is nick langan have a great day everybody